0: not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.
3: thing of sun lotion. So go to page1books.com. Page one with the number one. So page1books.com number one, and check out my page one books summer bundle. Buy it as a gift at housewarming if you actually go somewhere or just give it to yourself. Everybody needs a treat. We've had a long spring. <laughs> page1books.com. Hi, today is day two of my July book blast, which I started yesterday with Memoir Mondays. Today is Debut Tuesdays, and I'm going to be featuring a number of incredible debut authors whose books have come out during the quarantine or around this time or are great beach reads and things you should definitely start reading now. I will be doing this for 10 days in July with lots and lots of episodes so that you all can enjoy it while it's still the summer. I hope you enjoy today's Debut Tuesday. Listen to all of them some of them and spread the word. I love talking to Amanda Brainerd about her debut novel, Age of Consent. Amanda is a New York City real estate broker, wife, and mother of three. She graduated from Harvard College and earned a Master of Architecture from Columbia University after being expelled from Choate Rosemary Hall Boarding School in the 10th grade. This is her first novel. Doesn't that make you want to read her book? Anyway, listen, I had a great conversation with her, and I bet you'll really enjoy it. So, welcome, Amanda. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to
0: Read Books. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So, I read
3: that you also grew up on the Upper East Side of New York, and I did not know you. I don't know. Maybe you we're different ages or something. I think you're a
0: little younger than I am. That's my suspicion. Maybe. I'm 43, so. Okay. Yes, you're ten years you're ten years younger than I am. Okay,
3: well, so we missed each other a little bit,
2: but <laughs> I loved
3: all the references to everything New York and Age of Consent. It was like amazing. It was really I felt, especially in quarantine ish now, <laughs> being able to be on the FDR Drive and like clubs and I don't know all that stuff. It was just like really awesome. <laughs>
0: What's really funny, though, is I actually made a few errors about things like the domino sign and which direction Prince Street goes. And actually, the copy editors at Viking caught that. Thank goodness, because I didn't want to look like a moron. Yeah, I mean, so, I would
3: have been calling you out in the direction of Prince Street right now had you not fixed it. So
0: good <laughs> exactly. thing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
3: So, for listeners who don't know what Age of Consent is about, this is your debut novel. Congratulations.
0: <laughs> Thank you. It's very exciting. It's been a very long journey. So, the story is about three young women—they're fifteen and sixteen—coming of age, trying to become adults in an era where the adult role models are also in deep crisis and trying to navigate being a teenager and relationships with boys, relationships with older men, which in some instances seem more appealing than the fumbling boys their age. And parental damage, parents who have their own issues and are grappling with their own problems and so are unable to parent in the way that maybe the girls would like them to. And it starts off at boarding school and the second half takes place, as you were mentioning, in New York city. And it spans a year from 1983 to 1984. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of fact checking and like, (laughs) was for example, like there was a situation where I had, and one of the offices, two of the girls have summer internships. And one of them was working in office with a fax machine. And they figured out that actually fax machines did not start getting used until the mid eighties, which just seems amazing to me that, you know, so there was some historic detail that needed to be. Made more accurate.
3: I clearly remember when we got a fax machine in my house. So it had to have been like 80... 87. I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah. But I remember it so well with like the shiny paper because my friends and I would start faxing each
0: other handwritten notes at night. <laughs> yeah. It was very exciting times, the, the slow onset of technology back then. Yes.
3: <laughs> I'm still like amazed by the way kids now, I mean, I'm making myself sound old, but can use technology. I was just with my daughter doing like an online award ceremony for her school. And in the corner, she was FaceTiming with friends and they were kind of watching together. And I was like, this is so cool. I wish I had had this.
0: Well, it just makes them so much more connected to one another. Yes. And that's another thing uh, that, that is a big theme in my novel is the isolation of the teenage years and the way you feel like you're the only one who's going through these things and you envy. You look at other teenagers and you think, why can't I be like her? When actually they're probably looking at you and saying, why can't I be like her? Yes. So just sort of general sort of feeling like this is only happening to me I'm the only one suffering and how you just live in this kind of bubble of your interior life during those years.
3: I remember the advice like my mother would give me, like, everyone else is so concerned about themselves. They're not thinking about you. And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm the great. only one who's self-conscious.
0: <laughs> that is such good advice.
3: <laughs> I didn't believe it. Now that well. I'm a grown up, she was right.
0: <laughs> it's probably actually still the case. <laughs>
3: it's Certainly probably Grace. still the case. You're you're 100% right. So tell me the journey of this novel and how it's coming out now and, and all the rest.
0: Well, I mean, it's, I wish I could tell you the sort of fairy tale that I wrote this novel and I immediately got an agent and I immediately got it published, but it was not like that at all. So it started in 2009, believe it or not, the journey began. I had fellow writer, Nick Palmgarten, who's a New Yorker writer over, who's a friend and went to St. Bernard's over for supper and with his wife. And Nick and I were just talking about you know what it was like to be parents now and what parents were like back then. And then we started to sort of discuss the incredible lack of parenting that was happening in the early 80s. For example, there are these famous four brothers who had this duplex on Fifth Avenue and their parents went to the South. of Actually, their father died and their mother went to the South of France for the entire summer and left four teenage boys alone in this gigantic apartment. Nothing good happened. So all of a sudden, while I was talking to Nick, I thought, the light bulb went off and I thought, I've got to write this story. I have to tell this story. So I began to interview the people that I wanted to, who I thought would have the most, the richest stories and the people that I immediately gravitated toward automatically. And I had all those interviews transcribed. And I initially thought of this novel, not as a novel, but as an oral history, sort of in the vein of Gene Stein's E.D., where different people are telling a story that all adds up into one hole. And I quickly realized that the truth was very constraining. And I wanted to tell the story and the emotion of the things that had actually happened in my own way without having to stick to exactly what did happen. And so I made it into a novel. And I sent it around to a bunch of agents. I don't. I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I sent it to you know friend of my mother's or you know friend of a colleague, and both. I think I got two rejections, and I was so painfully wounded by that that I put the book away, and I wrote two other books that I also put away. And the third, the third one actually, I was Fran Lebowitz, the writer, and pundit i would call her i guess mouthpiece hilarious you know she's a hilarious brilliant person asked me to read the third novel and it was a young adult novel and she read it and she said you're such a good writer why are you writing a book like this i said well and i tried to explain young adult novels to her and she was like she just didn't buy the genre of young adult she was like either they're books or they're not books so she showed it to an editor friend of hers who loved it and convinced me to rewrite it. And I did. And I got an agent. And here we are. And it, it would never have happened if it weren't for Fran.
3: Wow. I think so, uh, I want to write an article and call it Don't Even Try to Sell Your First Two Novels. <laughs> that's a really because, good Because like, I don't think, I, I keep hearing over and over and over again, like, well, I wrote two novels, but my third novel. So I think maybe you just need to write those two with no expectation of ever selling them. Even though you think I that think, at the outset that you might, it, it's like impossible. I think,
0: I just think you're right. I mean, I think the problem is writers aren't just hatched out of an egg. So it took me a long time to actually figure out how to write a novel. I mean, it doesn't just, it's not just as simple as telling a story. I mean, you have to balance. The first draft was almost all dialogue because as an author, I didn't have a sense of my own authorship. So I hid behind dialogue to tell a story when I should have actually just been able to take the reins and tell that story in another way so that the reader, you know, too much dialogue is exhausting for the reader. But it took me a long time to figure out the right balance. And of course, the classic show don't tell and all these No adverbs, you know, all kinds of things that are rules for a reason. Because although you can always break the rules, but you have to do it right.
3: It's like if you were an artist, right, and you were trying to learn how to paint, you wouldn't try to sell necessarily your first two or three paintings. You would like practice and practice. But I feel like because books take so long to write and they're so labor-intensive and so personal and everything else, I don't know. People feel disappointed. I don't know. It's it's like you don't give yourself enough. People don't give themselves enough leeway. To know that the beginning is is that this is a part of the process well anyway I'll get off the this bandwagon no here. but
0: I, 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 think, I think what's really interesting about writing is everyone experiences it very differently you know I, I constantly am hearing about authors who really struggle and I think are are in pain while they write <laughs> for me for me it, it's it's the most fun I mean it, it, it's just the things that get woven in from my real life and the little jokes that I, it's like knitting a sweater and I can weave in these fun little threads. And then if one of those threads doesn't work, I can unravel it and thread in something new. And it's pretty, I, I love it. I think it's incredible. And when I first started writing, it was very adrenal. I, mean, I felt so excited by telling this story. And you you have three kids, correct? They're a little older. They're a little older. I only have one left in high school and two in college. But yeah, they all went to the same, you know, the same, the same thing, the same private school that I went to and, you know, all of that.
3: Did you have boarding school in the mix as well, like in your book? No,
0: I permit, I didn't allow them because of my own terrible experience of boarding school, boarding school was not permitted. And to be honest, I didn't have a child who wanted to go to boarding school. I think if I'd had someone who really needed a change or was a great athlete. We don't have a fam- we're not a family of athletes. So we didn't really investigate the boarding school thing, but I was, my husband also went to boarding school and I really was opposed to it. And also we have so few years with our children. I wanted them to be with me as much as possible. I mean, I miss them terribly. Now they're home. now they're all home, of course, because of the coronavirus, which is in many ways a blessing, but I wanted them with me, you know, close. So
3: I have a, a son who goes to boarding school. I have four kids, but he, he goes. Well, I mean, he's been home since February, but I didn't want to send my kids to boarding school either. But this was so right for him. And I feel like it's like my sacrifice. Do you know I mean? Like, it's good for him. He's thriving in every way, but it's nothing I thought I would do. And it hurts. I mean, it really hurts to have
0: him away, but I don't know. If it's better for him and he's having a wonderful time, then it's easy to sort of yes. justify it and, yeah. and make it understandable. It's true.
3: But your glimpses in the book of boarding school did not exactly make me feel better
0: about my, my decision and some of the things going on. Well, I think things are very different now. I mean, I think there is still there are still teachers that don't behave properly. Let's just put it that way. But I think that the students are a lot, they're squarer nowadays. And maybe I'm naive. And maybe it's my own children. My kids are pretty square. And I think a lot of people's kids are a lot squarer than we were back in the day. I mean, I think to myself, if my daughter's did anything close to the things that I did. I mean, my mother always thought the minute I had a daughter, she said, This is Nana's revenge. <laughs> but, but I was lucky. I mean, my girls are so good. I feel like they're sort of pathologically, you know, well behaved. And I mean, maybe I'm naive. Who knows? They could possibly, <laughs> but they're definitely not going to Studio 54 at two o'clock in the morning.
1: <laughs> Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
4: follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
3: I know. I couldn't even believe like some of the things in the book, like even having a permission slip to be able to smoke at boarding school and like all your references to like what type of brand cigarettes. Oh, you seem like a lucky girl, but you're smoking Benson and Hedges. I was like, oh my gosh.
0: (laughs) You you were dying for a cigarette reading it, right? (laughs) I mean, that's true. You could smoke. Well, first of all, when I went to college, you could smoke in the library. They had ashtrays all the way down the big reading table. And this is, you know, late 80s. I mean, it just is so incomprehensible. And yes, as a teenager, you could be 14 years old and there was a permission slip that was sent home. Can your daughter or son smoke? Check here, yes or no. And they would actually come and bust the kids who were smoking who didn't have permission. So funny. Oh my gosh. It's hard to imagine. I think there are a lot of things in the novel like that though, Zibby, that I, I think are shocking to people who Didn't experience them firsthand. And I will tell you that I toned down the truth to make it more palatable. So that's, and I (laughs) hear a lot of times (laughs) that authors do that because the truth is not believable sometimes. You have to write, and that's another reason that I wanted to write it as a novel because I wanted to get to the truth of the actual moment or emotion, but not have to actually tell the real story.
3: Very interesting you know, your book also had a lot of references to the characters that were Jewish and the characters that were not Jewish and the difference there and feeling almost other than at very like waspy enclave. Can you talk a little bit about that decision?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny because I never thought about it because I was in New York City where basically, you know, I've considered half the population to be Jewish and, you know, probably 25%, maybe I'm exaggerating, but 25% of my class at Nightingale was Jewish. And Nightingale wasn't even a particularly Jewish school. And it was just normal to be Jewish. I got to boarding school. First of all, I was the only one with dark hair in the whole school. Everyone's blonde. But I just felt, uh, first of all, I was also very artsy and I had an asymmetrical hairdo and I wore black and I would be considered a goth now, you know, but it was sort of, I, I arrived at this lacrosse playing you know, flouncy skirt environment. And I was, I I couldn't believe it. I mean, girls actually had Farrah Fawcett hairdos and I'd never seen that before. I mean, I thought it was a joke and they looked at me like I was a specimen in a jar. I mean, they just, I was such a fish out of water and I was really unprepared for that. And I was really unprepared. There was a significant amount of anti-Semitism, and I think it was really just ignorance. I think they just didn't know any Jews from you know where they were from. There weren't any, and it's interesting because my father went to boarding, the same boarding school, and I spoke to him. You know, in in researching and working on this book and thinking about the question of my Jewishness in that environment, I asked him how it was for him. I mean, he was there in the fifties, and he said it was horribly anti-Semitic, but I couldn't as a kid, understand that that was what was going on. I hated it there. I didn't have any friends. He said, well, maybe I was kind of a jerk also. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, the, it was just, you were you were an other, you were an alien. And I'm sure that was also and even more true for students of color in that environment. And I really think all of that has changed significantly. I hope.
3: It's true. I also think some, you know, some environments and some sports and some you know, some little pockets are more ripe for that than others. I remember like when I went to Yale, I had played lacrosse in high school. And like you growing up in New York City, like never really thought twice about it. But when I, I decided to try to walk on to the lacrosse team, at Yale, which was like the stupidest decision, and lasted maybe two weeks. You know, I'm first of all I'm five two, and everybody on the team was like six feet tall and long blonde hair and so athletic. And like, oh, I had the most assists in the nation last year. And I'm like, all right, I was I was pretty decent at my terrible school team, but uh, I don't know. I don't even know what possessed me. But anyway, one of the, you know, the Yom Kippur was while I was trying to make this team, and I was fasting, and I didn't want to tell anybody because. Nobody like even spent a second even talking about it or acknowledged that it was a holiday and I didn't want to like not make the team because of it. So I went on this like four mile run with no food or water. Oh. And halfway through, I like collapsed it, not collapsed, but had to start walking and finally told like the one girl next to me. And she was like, why didn't you say anything? Anyway, I gave up. I mean, it was that and the like communal showers also did not sound like a good thing. That was not going to happen for me. No, so no. <laughs> I, that was not going to be for me. But anyway, I relate very much to sort of that feeling. And I think anyone who has any sort of feeling of ever being, you know, different than the bulk of a group can relate to what happens in this book. And
0: it was just a shock for me because, I mean, in New York, I was popular, I was cool. And all of a sudden, I was this weirdo. And my roommate was from Texas and was very conservative and wore frilly blouses. I mean, it's sort of a fashion thing going on, then the prairie look. <laughs> <laughs> and every couple of weeks, a new box would arrive from San Antonio, Texas with uh, all of these frilly blouses and flouncy skirts and little <laughs> lace-up boots. And she wore petticoats. No, she, come on. She, I swear, she literally thought I was going to infect her with my new wave music and my asymmetrical hairdo and my David Bowie posters. I had my entire room, as you noticed in the book, there are a lot of David Bowie references, but I had my entire room plastered with David Bowie. And she actually did have a poster on her wall of a kitten hanging on a fence or on a a limb of a tree. And it said, hang in there, baby, underneath. And that's in the book. I bet it's in the book.
3: Yes, (laughs) so funny.
0: (laughs) She had fuzzy kittens and I had David Bowie. So it was a little bit of a a contrast.
3: Oh my gosh. At least the character in the book had somebody to bond with over it. You know, you gave her a a friend to be like, can you believe we had the sign? And she's like, no way. (laughs) So that's nice. I know, that was true though. So now that you have a book coming out, and you have like a whole other career, right? You're a real estate broker. and
0: right. I am. right? Yeah. And so, yeah, and I actually have a lot of, I work very hard as a real estate broker, and I have a lot of business, and it's very hectic. And I've been working crazily since the coronavirus, believe it or not. So, you know, people say to me, like, I can't believe you have three kids, and you have this career in real estate, and you wrote a novel, and you're getting it published. How do you do it all? And I'm just sort of like, I don't know. I mean, I just do it. you know, I just don't think about it. And how did you have time to write a novel is the question I get a lot. And I and like you 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 know from your own life, everyone knows from their own life if they really want to do something, they will find time, no matter what. Nothing will stop them. They will get up at four o'clock in the morning. It's just it was it, and it was also really not a choice. It was like something I. it was a compulsion. It was something that I still. I mean, I'm working on my next novel now. So it's just, I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to, you know, make it work.
3: And what's your next novel about?
0: I'll just give you a little, I don't want to have any spoilers because it's a bit, it's a little bit more of a thriller than Age of Consent. It's about two women who look exactly alike. So years ago, when my children were in preschool, the head of the preschool said to me, I never know, Mrs. Brainerd, if it's you or Mrs. Reed you look exactly like, and all of the administrators have this problem is Mrs. Brainerd or Mrs. Reed. So I was like, who's this Mrs. Reed? You know, you're always hearing, oh, you look exactly like so-and-so or, and you're, and it's, it's never true. But I was like, what if this woman actually looks exactly like me? And then I thought, what if you meet someone who really does look exactly like you? That's what the book is about. That's very cool.
3: That's awesome.
0: I mean, we all, think in a, we all think in a way that we, I don't know if you feel this way, that we have some kind of a double somewhere in the world. So it's really about that. And it's an investigation of female identity.
3: Oh, well, I can't wait for that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
0: Well, one of my best friends from college is a screenwriter in Los Angeles. And when I first started doing this, she gave me some very good advice. She said the formula for writing is ass plus chair. And that is just do it and just keep working on it and revise and read your work out loud. Don't get discouraged. And also have reasonable expectations. I mean, somebody said to me when I first started writing my novel, they're like, oh, you know, it'll probably take you probably about 10 years to get this, you know, to the point where it's published. And I said, I don't spend 10 years doing anything. 10 years later, I'm getting my novel published. So, it, I think to understand how long this really takes and to be kind to yourself and not set your expectations so high that you'll always be failing because there's so much rejection involved in this process. It's, I mean, it, 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 and it's still whenever I feel I, I'm now a hardened, seasoned, writer, but in the beginning, the rejection from those two first agents, I felt it physically. It hurt me physically. I mean, it's terribly painful. Writing is so personal, but I would just say perseverance and not taking no for an answer and just keep going. Keep moving forward. Don't look behind. Keep moving forward. Learn from the negative experiences, but use them to make yourself stronger and better and just keep going. I was listening to your podcast that you did with Lily King recently. I love her writing. And she said exactly the same thing, perseverance.
3: Well, if you and Lily King say it, then that's what everyone's got to (laughs) do.
0: It's true. And just give yourself a break and, you know, just keep at it.
3: Awesome. I love it. Well, thanks, Amanda. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for memory lane of new york in another time uh, and, and the
0: teenage years yeah teenage, and those years. teenage years it was so nice to meet you, <laughs> you and too. thank you so much for having me
3: my pleasure hope to meet you in person one of yeah. these days it'll <laughs> okay. happen okay Bye-bye. bye thanks for listening to one of my debut tuesday episodes in the july book blast series i really hope you enjoyed it and it's really my pleasure to bring you some debut authors you might not have heard of or have listened to so enjoy i hope you really got a lot out of it Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Page One Books for sponsoring today's episode. I hope you'll all check out my summer beach bundle at pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long.